This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com. Today is the redemption and the holiday of liberation of the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe. It's a two-day holiday. Let's take a moment and talk about the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe and the, the, one of the most significant holidays in the Chabad Hasidic world. Um, it's a 48-hour holiday. This was 1927. The previous Lubavitcher Rebbe, the Rebbe's father-in-law, Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak, was arrested, Stalinist Russia, sentenced to death. Then his sentence was commuted to 10 years in exile in Siberia. Then it was commuted to three years exile. The city the previous rabbi was exiled was to Kastrama. He was arrested in, in St. Petersburg. He sat in prison. This was the same city with Alta Rebbe. First Lubavitcher Rebbe sat in prison. It was different prisons, of course. This was the Tsar's prison, and this was the Communist prison. When the Communists took over, they released all the prisoners of the Tsar. Then they opened their own prison. Then, on the third day of Thomas, third day of Thomas, when he left prison, and he was sent into exile, to, um, and then in the twelfth day of Thomas, on his birthday, his 47th birthday, he was released from prison. But by the time he got to the office to get his papers, it was a holiday, they closed early, so he couldn't get his papers. He had to wait till the next day to receive his release papers, and that's when he left, he left uh, the exile, and he went back home. Now, the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe lived through the 30 most difficult years in Jewish life, the most challenging years. Communism, Russia boasted the largest Jewish community in the world, and overnight, all Jewish life was shut down. All the yeshivot, synagogues, the uh, Jewish centers, the mikvaot, everything became illegal, especially the Jewish communists, the self-hating Jews. Communism, unfortunately, is a gift that was gifted to the world by Jews. They were the worst. They went after Jewish life with a vengeance. They turned against their own. And um, then you had Hitlerism, which came terrifyingly close to achieve his, the, the solution to the Jewish problem. Six million plus. And then you had American assimilationism. Which, where even the streets in America were treif. And um, the previous Rebbe single-handedly stood up to all three. Survived Hitler. Survived his prison. He's being sentenced to death. This was a prison where it was a one-way street. People went in, but no one came out. 
And less than two weeks, a little more than two weeks later, he was released, commuted to exile, and then completely released. And then the previous Rebbe miraculously survived the Nazis. He was there during the attack against Poland. He was in Warsaw. He lived through... This was the first war where your living room became the front lines. The previous Rebbe describes it in great detail. He was a writer. He kept a diary. And the horrors of the war. And miraculously, he was actually saved by the German Secret Service. This is one of the most miraculous stories of the war, which is not publicized, people are not aware of. Actually written up recently. America was still at peace with Germany at the time. And the head of the American Secret Service called his counterpart and asked him a favor that he should find the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe in Warsaw and escort him out and send him to America. Which is an unusual request in its own part. And he acquiesced and he sent one of his agents who was actually a Michelin. His father was Jewish. And his mother wasn't. He was, and he went to Warsaw to carry out this mission. Trying so, firstly, it took him a few months to find the previous rebbe. Because when a Nazi is knocking down your door and is asking for the rebbe, you can imagine <laughs> everyone's mouth was sealed. No one revealed. Nazis are looking for the rebbe. It can only mean one thing. Finally, finally, after many months, he finally found. He knocks on the door where the previous Rebbe was hiding, and everyone thought this is it. And the previous Rebbe told him to relax, and he said, I'm here to save you. I'm here to release you. I'm here to redeem you. And he escorted the previous Rebbe with his whole family. Just imagine this picture, escorting through German lines, a German secret service. He had to bluff his way through the SS, because this was like a semi-authorized, unauthorized type of trip. It was all under the radar. And the SS, sees walking with the Rebbe and with his whole family. They, they didn't like this. They were ready to send him to the camps. And he had to yell at them and scream at them. I have direct orders from Hitler. But if you don't let me go, I'm going to, you know. So he had to bluff his way through. And he escorted the Rebbe through Germany. And then he send them off to America, one of the last civilian ships. You know, this, in a way, this miracle is even greater than the, his release from Stalinist Russia, literally in the lion's den, saved by one of the lions. Um, but for obvious reasons, it's not talked about a lot and not publicized. Um, but he survived Hitler. And then he came to America. When he came to America in 1940. He said his classical words that America is not different, America is not different, because the prevailing feeling at the time was that America is different. You can't be Jewish in America. Not really. You know, not 100%. Maybe for the old-timers, they're too old to change. You know, they're, they're, 
come to this country, you're 40, 50 years old, you're not exactly going to suddenly change your lifestyle. So you had thousands of synagogues in America, people with beards, keeping Shabbos, learning, davening, and they were keeping Shabbos, and their grandchildren were playing baseball outside. And, you know, no Jewish education, or hardly any Jewish schools. And, uh, and their children thought in order to make it in America, you have to work, and Shabbos wasn't an option, they thought, you have no choice. And so the melting pot syndrome and the, the assimilation began. So you had proud grandparents, proud to be Jewish and spoke Yiddish and lit the candles and kept kosher and went to shul. And many of the grandchildren had memories of the grandma, uh, Bubby, lighting the candle and, you know, preparing for the Seder and even going to shul with Zaydi. But, but it was all memories, nostalgic memories, but uh, it wasn't communicated. The Yiddish guide remained with the older generation and it wasn't communicated to the younger generation. And the previous Rebbe fought against this prevailing geist and feeling that America is different. And 10 years in America, he started to turn the tide and to show that America is not different. You can be 100% Jewish and committed and passionate, and you can be 100% American without compromising one iota of your, of your Jewishness. So for one individual to be able to face such challenges. Each of these challenges alone was powerful enough to give a death knell to the Jewish people. Communism did a great job of wiping out Jewish life. One generation, let alone after two or three generations. Hitler, unfortunately, came too close, terrifyingly close. Took six million Jews, some of our best. And American assimilationism. We lost more Jews to assimilation than we did than we did to Hitler. To be able to stand up to these three challenges, it just tells us what an amazing, special Jew the previous Rebbe was. You know, everything that Hashem creates in this world is an equal balance, equal scale. Every plus has a minus. Hashem created the world that everything should be balanced. Good and evil should be balanced in order to give us freedom of choice. So from the depth of evil of a Hitler and a Stalin, such evil the world has never seen from the creation. Stalin murdered more Russians than, than Hitler did. Over 20 million of his own. Hitler, World War II, led to close to 100 million casualties throughout the world. I mean, it's staggering, the, the, the evil that these two monsters have unleashed on such a global scale is just beyond belief, beyond conception. The depth of evil knows no bounds, boundless, limitless evil. It could just give us a little inkling of the depth of holiness and goodness of their counterbalance. The previous Lubavitcher Rebbe was the counterbalance and holiness to this absolute evil. So you can have some sense of the absolute goodness and depth and unfathomable depth of the holiness of the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe. His selflessness, his dedication, his devotion, his self-sacrifice.
you can understand the Rebbe was such a chassid, was such a devoted chassid and follower of his father-in-law, of the previous Rebbe. You know, he was like, to him he was like, he was like so godly and like such a godly person because you know to see firsthand you know what a, what a giant what a giant of a Jew this the previous Rebbe was what a giant of a tzaddik was, it's, 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 it's unconceivable so the previous Rebbe was arrested because he was the only one in Russia who single-handedly kept up Jewish life while all the rabbis ran away and um, previous Rebbe, with his Hasidim, called in line of his Hasidim, besides himself, one of them was actually Khani's grandfather, and they took an oath, the last drop of blood, they will spread Judaism and build mikvaot and yeshivot and teach children and keep Jewish, Jewish uh, life alive. And there were many rabbis who were actually opposed to this whole program, in principle. So where does it say in the Torah you have to sacrifice your life to teach children alephes? Who says you're allowed to sacrifice your life to teach children alephes? You have to sacrifice your life not to commit adultery, idolatry, murder, not to commit murder, three cardinal sins. But other than that, you're not allowed to commit, you're not allowed to sacrifice your life. Who says you're allowed to sacrifice your life to teach cheder? If you don't have to, you're not allowed to. So they're actively opposed to this program. But if not for that sacrifice, there would be no Jewish life in Russia. My father learned in, one, one, in such a cheder. He was a little boy. His grandparents were not Chabad. He was born in Kiev, Ukraine, the capital of Ukraine. And the only cheder, the only game in town was Chabad. They were the only ones who were ready to sacrifice their life to give children, Jewish children, a Jewish education. With someone standing at the door, making sure as soon as the... As the uh, you have sex here, the Jewish communist and the communist, Stalinist uh, troops or whatever, the police would come. They would run and hide. Because if the teacher was caught, he would end up in Siberia. And many times you haven't made it back from Siberia. If you did make it back, you're lucky enough to make it back. You were so broken, physically abused and broken. And if they caught the Malamed, there was no shortage of uh, someone to fill in his place. The Hasidim, Lubavitch and Hasidim were ready to sacrifice everything to teach Judaism. This was the previous Rebbe's army. So you can understand the Russians were very upset. They said, we have to, we have to, we, we have to remove the previous Rebbe. He's like a, he's like a bone in our throat. He's just, he's just we can't, he's insuppressible. We can't stop him. We can deal with everyone else, but everyone else is negotiable. But the previous Rebbe was like a rock of Gibraltar. Nothing would break him. And he kept on sending and opening up all these clandestine yeshivot and mikvahs and kept Jewish li li life alive. And he supported it and he had a whole network. And Parenthetically, just the Rebbe would always tell the story and it was such astonishment. Right before the previous Rebbe was arrested, 1927, he had to go on a, a secret trip and a very, a very sensitive trip because he was distribu distributing money to his network and he was traveling. And, and they knew that the, the Russians were already watching every step, every move of his. He was on, you know, they were watching him closely. 
And it was very dangerous, you know. They were worried that he'll be arrested. And the whole family was very nervous. The previous Rebbe was about to go to the train to catch his train. But the Rebbe walks in like an hour before he's about to catch his train. And he sees a sight, he said, that he was like shocked. <laughs> you know, it takes a lot to shock the Rebbe. So the previous Rebbe was sitting with a Sefer, Torah, and he was learning, studying. And he was so calm, you could think he's in the countryside, a beach resort. <laughs> calm, not a wor- no worry in the world, nothing to worry about. Relaxed. <laughs> the whole Russian jury was on his head. He was about to go on this most sensitive, most dangerous journey. The whole family was, was you know, shaking and they were terrified and they were worried. And the previous was calm. The Rebbe asked, how is this possible? Like, that he asked his father, I, I, I mean, you're about, like, he couldn't understand this. How is it even humanly possible? You're about to go on this. And the previous Rebbe responded, he says, my father taught me how to be successful with time, how to utilize time properly. We can't add more time to the day. There's only 24 hours in the day. But we could learn how to utilize that time much better. And the way to succeed in time is, is whatever you're doing, you're doing 100%. Right now I'm studying Torah. Nothing in the, univ- nothing in the world exists. All that exists right now is I'm studying Torah. There's no trip. Am I going anywhere? Am I coming from anywhere? This is it. So I'm 100% immersed in the Torah. And that's how he explains how the Rajba, the Rajba, Rabbi Shlomo ben Adaret, the leader of the Jewish people in Spain, the leader of his generation, was the leader of his generation. He was a doctor to the king and the whole royal family. There's ministers. He would give three shiurim a day, three lectures a day, to the greatest scholars of Europe of his day and age. You're talking about in the medieval times when the real scholars, he had to prepare for these lectures. They were brilliant minds and all very learned. That's besides the learning that he did in his own. He was prolific in his responsa because he responded to questions that Jews had from all over, Allah questions, and he responded. And we have many of them. And in addition to that, he would take a walk every day in the royal garden for an hour a day. And he would walk. And when he walked, he walked. It's not like he walked and he was reading, uh, preparing his classes. No, when he walked, he would relax, smell the air, just you know, exercise, like walk, exercise, relax. He says, how, is, how could he do everything <laughs> between and eat and sleep? He had his family and keep up such a schedule. And the answer is, this is the success, the key, the secret to success. Because most of us beat around the bush until we do something. We get so distracted and until we, we get to the point, we waste. Hours go by. And, but when you're successful in time, whatever you're doing, you're doing 100% and you get to the point and you stick to the point. And that's why you can do tremendous amount. You can do so much more than you're doing now. Whenever the Rebbe told the story, I remember him telling the story, it was like, 
it was like visibly impressed. Like, how is it even possible? It was like so beyond. So, previous Rebbe was arrested. Fifteenth day of Sivan. He was arrested by the Jews. The Jewish communists came to arrest. One of them actually took his bags to take to the car. And he said, Rebbe, let me carry your bags. My grandfather carried your grandfather's bags. The fourth Lubavitcher Rebbe, Rebbe Marash. The previous Rebbe refused to give it to him. He says, no. My grandfather went where he wanted to go, and your grandfather carried the bags for him. You want to carry my bags? I should go where you want to go, in prison. No, no, you're not carrying my bags. You don't have the merit to carry my bags. <laughs> but in the interrogation, they were referred to many times as Rebbe. Like Rebbe, they would call him Rebbe. And um, they took him to the prison, Spalerke, in St. Petersburg. The previous Rebbe decided, made a decision, right at the the get-go, that they don't exist. In his eyes, the prison, the interrogators, they're zero. They're less than zero. They're nothing. There's no other reality but God. They're completely illegitimate. They have no power, they're nobodies, they're criminals. Everything they're accusing him of is ridiculous. He has his right to serve Hashem. And there's nothing actually in the Russian constitution against it. And he's not political and he refused to acknowledge it. And that's the first thing they do when they bring you to prison is they try to break you. They break you. They intimidate you. And they couldn't break the previous rep. And it drove them crazy. They put him into isolation. They beat him. They, they, they tortured him. He refused to budge. So much so, even when they came to let him know that he's released from prison, he refused to stand up. They said, we're here to tell you good news. You're nobodies. You had no right to arrest me in the first place. And at one point they got so frustrated that one of the Jewish interrogators took out a gun. He says, Rebbe, this little toy made a lot of people speak. So the Rebbe very coolly looked at them and said, this little toy could only make a person who has two gods in one world. This little toy could impress him. But we Jews, we have one God and we have two worlds. This little toy doesn't impress me. And uh, the Rebbe tells a story that the, you know, the prisoners, they had to take a picture. So they came to the previous Rebbe to take his picture. The previous Rebbe was in the middle of praying. He was with his talus and his tefillin. And, you know, they tapped him, the previous rabbi looked, and he told him, like, made with his hands, like, go away, in the middle of davening. He couldn't speak. It was in the middle of davening, in the middle of praying. He said, go away. <coughs> and they left. And they came back a little later to see if he didn't, if he's still davening, and he kept on praying. And they kept on going away until he was ready, which, as we think about it, is completely unthinkable. It's a Stalinist Russia. You're not asking the prisoner... <laughs> When you want to be taking a picture of the, and you're davening, that's the reason he was arrested because he's davening and praying and he's, a, he's the leader, the spiritual leader of the Jewish people. 
and it's, it's inexplicable. But when they saw the Rebbe, a godly Jew, sitting in his palace and still and communing and connecting with Hashem, they, they were just out of, were intimidated. They were just out of awe. They just backed up. They didn't even think of how can we disturb the Rebbe in the middle of davening to Hashem. They couldn't didn't even enter their mind that it was completely unheard of. And they just respectfully backed up. When they asked the previous Rebbe, do you know where you are? He says, yes. He says, I'm in a place that's exempt from mezuzah. Now, luckily, a bathroom doesn't have a mezuzah and a prison doesn't have a mezuzah. And the previous Rebbe, the Rebbe explained why did the previous Rebbe tell them that it's a place that doesn't have a mezuzah. He wanted to draw down on himself the protection of the mezuzah. Because part of fulfilling the mitzvah of mezuzah is just like the mitzvah of mezuzah tells you dictates that you should have a mezuzah in your door. The mitzvah of mezuzah dictates that a prison is exempt from mezuzah. So by not having a mezuzah, that's how I'm fulfilling the mitzvah of mezuzah. How do you fulfill the mitzvah of mezuzah in prison? By not putting on a mezuzah. So you want to have the protection of the mezuzah. In other words, I'm, f- I'm connecting to connect it to the mitzvah of, uh, mitzvah of mezuzah. By not having the mitzvah, that's also, the mitzvah tells you, don't put on a mezuzah here. But it means I'm still covered by mezuzah, I'm still covered by, by his protection. And then he was released. He saw that it was, on the desk was written that he was sentenced to death. Then it was erased. Then it was 10 years. And then, miraculously, it was commuted to first three years exile, Kastrama. And he was supposed to be released the second day of Tammuz, which was on Shabbat. And the previous Rebbe says, no, I'm not leaving prison on Shabbat. The question is, how luckily it's life and death. If they're releasing you from Stalin's prison, you run <laughs> any day of the week. But in principle, the previous Rebbe symbolized the Jewish people. He embodied the Jewish people. And he says, I'm not leaving on Shabbat. And, you know, no one asked to stay in prison an extra day. <laughs> not in that type of prison. And it's unheard of that they agreed. But they said, okay, they respected Shabbat. You'll be our guest for another day. And on Sunday, he was released. He came to the Vagzal, the train station. All the Hasidim gathered. They never thought they would see the previous Rebbe alive again. So that was such a... You can imagine how they felt. They saw the previous Rebbe released from prison, and he was on the way to exile for three years at that time. And the previous Rebbe gave a fiery speech at the station, quoting his father, the classical words of his father, the fifth Lubavitcher Rebbe, said, that we must proclaim in front of all the nations of the world that only our bodies went into exile. We did not choose to go into exile. God Almighty expelled us from the land of Israel, destroyed our temple, dispersed us throughout all the nations of the world. And only God Almighty himself will return us to the promised land, all 14 million of us, with the coming of Mashiach and the rebuilding of the third temple. But even though we're in exile, and the Torah says we have to respect the government, and we have to honor our government, and be faithful, and loyal, and patriotic, but that's only when it comes to matters of the body, paying your taxes, etc. But anything, matters of the soul, anything that affects our Yiddishkeit, we never went into exile. No force on earth has any power over the Jewish soul. We only answer to Hashem, and we proclaim this in front of everyone. He was just released from prison. <laughs> and and here he's giving this fiery speech. It didn't make a dent. It's like, you know, 
rebellious <laughs> as ever and stubborn as ever and stiff-necked as ever and even more determined than ever. This was the previous Rebbe. This was what a giant of a, of a Jew he was. And then he went to Kastrama and then he was released a little uh, more than a week later he was released, completely released. Sentenced to commuted. This was a holiday. This was all the great Jewish people at that time, all the great rabbis throughout the world consider this a holiday because, you know, the Alter Rebbe's release from prison was, he sat in prison because of Hasidus. So it's like a Hasidic holiday. Here, the previous Rebbe sat in prison because of Yiddishkeit. He, he single-handedly saved Yiddishkeit in Russia. Everyone else fled, everyone else ran away. And heroically, single-handedly, for seven years, like the previous Rebbe once said, after he left Russia, you think they were wrong for arresting me? They were right. I was a troublemaker. I didn't, <laughs> for seven years, we worked hard and we brought Yiddishkeit in every corner of the land. I mean, Khan's father went uh, to, uh, in Georgia, to Belize, And he, you know, there, the communication with the headquarters was a little weaker because it was Georgia. The, you know, even though Stalin himself was from Georgia, they had a little more autonomy than... But he came, he forged the paper because there was a mikvah in town and they, the communists closed the mikvah. So he came and forged the paper from, from Moscow ordering you to open the mikvah. <laughs> there was no communication then. There was no phones or iPhones or you know, to send a telegram. Fine, you have a paper from the... I think he stole the stationery and he wrote... <laughs> and they built the mikvah. By the time they found out, and they came to arrest him, and they came to find him, to look for him, you know, but it was too late, they built a mikvah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> this is the type of thing. And that's one of the things, actually. Now, after the communists collapsed, we're able to open up the... Uh, we have the records now. So we're able to open up the records. This is one of the examples they brought when they arrested the previous rabbi. Look what your emissary did. He falsified, and he forged documents, and got to build mikvahs. So the previous Rebbe said, you think they were wrong for arresting? We were troublemakers. We were, throughout Russia, we built yeshivot and mikvot and kept Judaism alive and the children, we taught the children. And... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> right. And, um, and then finally they released him. And then they let him out of the country. First they didn't want to let take his library. He said, no, I have to take my library with me and his family, and a few hand-picked people that he took with him. At that time, the Rebbe was engaged to the, the second daughter, Rebbe Sachayim Mushka. And um, he said, I, I want a paper for my son-in-law as well. My future son-in-law. He says, future son-in-law? He's not your son-in-law. You'll find a son-in-law outside of Russia. He said, a son-in-law like this, I'm not going to find anywhere. So I'm, <laughs> he's coming with me. So the last Simchas Torah, that Simchas Torah, is still 1927. The previous Rebbe left at the end of the fall of 1927. So that Simchas Torah, um, the previous Rebbe was fabringing very strongly and he, spoke, he told the Hasidim, Hashem should help, we should see each other again. Now, many of the older Hasidim, the young Hasidim, got very excited. The previous Rebbe saying we should see each other again. It was like, it was like 
It was like saying we're going to meet in Mars. I mean, we're going to see each other in Mars. I mean, it was the Iron Curtain. No one was leaving Russia. No one was going anywhere. This was Stalinist Russia. But the young Hasidim, the Rebbe says we're going to see each other again. They got very excited. And some of the older Hasidim, or the more skeptical ones, or the more clever ones, or more sophisticated, said, listen, don't get your hopes high. It's just a wish. You know, it's not a re- reality. It's like, you know, like people say, Mashiach should come. It's like, you know, it's like to them it's a fantasy. It's a dream that will never happen. It's all in the future and always will be. It's like a nice wish. Don't get excited. Don't get your hopes high. A lot of the young Hasidims said, no, the Rebbe says we're going to see each other. We're going to see each other. And it's exactly what happened. Those who were skeptical through cold water and did not believe, were cynical, they never saw the previous Rebbe. They never made it out of Russia. And those who were, the Rebbe said, the Rebbe doesn't just say things. The Rebbe is a holy Jew. If he says something, it's sacred. They merited to leave Russia and they merited to see the previous Rebbe. Including my wife, my wife's family, my, my mother-in-law's family. The whole family left Russia and they came and they saw the previous Rebbe here in New York, which was to them in Russia was like the most unheard of, unthinkable dream, impossibility. And yet it happened. The fact that the embers of Judaism were still alive throughout all the communists, throughout the years of communism, was all because of that. the groundwork that the previous Rebbe laid out in this Hasidim sacrificed themselves and kept Judaism alive in the most harsher circumstances. And that's what separated the men from the boys. You know, it says in Ethics of Our Fathers, the end of chapter 3, Abelazim and Azariah says, there are two types of trees. There are trees that have very shallow roots, but a lot of branches and a lot of leaves. It looks very nice on the outside, but the moment the smallest wind comes, it uproots the tree, the tree collapses. There's no roots. Then you can have a tree, maybe on the outside it doesn't look so nice, it doesn't have so many branches, it doesn't have so many flowers, leaves. But the roots are deep. The roots are strong. And all the winds in the world cannot topple this tree. This tree remains erect. So too with Yiddishkeit. Many issues. Before the communists came to power, Russia was flooded with yeshivot. Flooded. In the thousands. But how do I know if Yiddishkeit is superficial or if Yiddishkeit is deeply rooted? When the winds start howling, when the hurricane came to town, the hurricane called communism, and everything and everyone collapsed. It was one tree that remained standing. And that was the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe. That was Anis Hasidim, who studied Hasidut, who went to Taim Chitmim. As the Chafetz Chaim would refer to them, and God's army says there are many divisions. There's the Air Force and the Navy and the, and the, the infantry. And, and the, he said the Chabad Hasidim, the, Chabad, the Yeshivot of Chabad, the Timimim, they are the Marines. They are the paratroopers they are who do you send in the tough assignments who do you send to create the beachheads and that's when you separate the men from the boys that's when you see who's for real is not for real that's when you see how deeply rooted Yiddishkeit is those who just studied Talmud all day and just studied without studying the 
depth of the Torah and the Hasidus and delving deeply and studying Hasidus the same way, the inner secrets of the Torah with the same depth and the same thoroughness and the same clarity that you study the Talmud. Those who delve into Hasidus and studied Hasidus and internalized it, they were the ones. They were God's army in Russia. They were the ones that kept Judaism alive single-handedly. The heroic self-sacrifice. And these are average people. These were not these were not tzaddikim. These were but they were so dedicated and so selflessly devoted and so it's heroic self-sacrifice. Made the ultimate sacrifice for Hashem. While everyone else just flew out of town, blew with the wind. That's when you can see it was a moment of truth. That's why the whole world was in awe of the previous Rebbe. You know, even Nagdim, even those who were against Hasidim, not Hasidim. But this was heroic. This was, this was something that, I mean, you couldn't just help but stand back and acknowledge and be astonished by this giant of a Jew. And it was so selfless and genuine and pure and incredible. This should have answered once and for all the necessity, how critical it is to learn Hasidus today. It's not a luxury. Because the challenges that we face today are no less, in a way it's even more challenging. Last challenge, the challenge of assimilationism, in a way it's even more challenging than the challenge of persecution. When all your options are open, that you can have every ulterior motive to assimilate, and you have no ulterior motive to be Jewish, and, and to be a committed Jew, and a passionate Jew, and a a knowledgeable Jew. Why? Unless you have the deep roots of Hasidus that could really fire up your neshama, fire up your soul, and give you that joy and that vitality and that connection, feeling of connection. Why would I, how is it possible to be 100% with it, be an American, 100% with it, and at the same time be 100% Jewish without compromising one another. You have to have that spirit and that depth which only comes from studying Hasidus. From Hasidus. So that question is, was answered once and for all after the story of Gimel Tamas uh, and Yudbez Tamas. Hasidus is critical for our generation. It's not a luxury. It's not, a, it's not icing on the cake. It's not like dessert. You know, it's a nice... Viennese table, <laughs> you know, nice luxus if you can afford, if you have extra time. It's critical. You want to be Jewish, 100% Jewish today, you have to learn Hasidus. It's not a question. That's why God revealed it today. Why did Hashem reveal it? For thousands of years it's been secret. And now suddenly Hashem gave us the Baal Shem Tev and gave us the Tanya and gave us all the Rabbi and the Magid and all the Rebbes and all these Hasidic teachings because it's critical today. You want to look at yourself honestly and answer the question honestly. You want to be 100% Jewish and be 100%. You have to. It's not a luxury. It's a must. It's a necessity. In a nutshell, that's the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe. It's Chag Today is the holiday of his redemption. He said not only I was redeemed, but every Jew, that, every Jew, even the Jew that's only a nickname the Jew, he doesn't even realize that being Jewish is his very core and essence and thinks it's just like a nickname. It's just, I'm Jewish, so what? I have blue eyes and I'm Jewish something superficial to me. Even he is redeemed. Every Jew is redeemed. Every Jew is affected by this redemption and is taken out of their own personal exile, spiritual, both spiritual and physical. So firstly, whatever we need physically, 
spiritually, we should all be redeemed by our own personal whatever troubles we have in this powerful day, holy day. And um, you're studying the Tanya, so we're connected. You study this, studying the book of the Benini. And the previous Rebbe, that was his favorite song, was the Benini. That was the song that was composed by my great-grandfather, Aaron Kharatanov, and that was his song. Whenever we sing a song for every Rebbe, the song for the previous Rebbe is the Benini. And the, the meaning of this song is since we know that we could be the way we should be, the way we ought to be, the question is then why aren't we the way we ought to be? Since we know that we could be and we're capable of it, and that's what's expected of us, nothing is stopping us. So why aren't we living up to our potential? Nothing's stopping us. That's, it's demanding. It's a song that demands. And demands of every Jew, the average Jew, not the tzaddik, the saint, the one in a million. Every Jew has to ask himself. Torah was a real program for real people, given to real people, living in the real world. Hashem demands of us and expects of us, each and every one of us. We can live up to the code of Jewish law, think like a Jew, act like a Jew, speak like a Jew, 24-7, and under all circumstances. Wherever we find ourselves in life, whatever we're doing in life, whatever our career is, we can live up to the Jewish ideal. Torah is eternal, the Jew is eternal, God is eternal. On the contrary, with every passing generation, it becomes even more, even more relevant and more profound and more powerful. And uh, so this was his theme song. And the previous Rebbe was the only Rebbe from all the Rebbes, from the Baal Shem, was the only Rebbe to actually visit Eretz Yisrael, to visit the Holy Land. The Baal Shem tried, made a trip, tried to go to Israel, and he was thwarted, he was stopped, didn't work out famous story we tell every Pesach, the last day of Pesach. The grandchildren tell the story um, that you've heard many times. The Alter Rebbe packed his bag, said goodbye, took his family and went, reached as far as the Russian-Turkish border. He was going to go with his mentor, his Rebbe, Rabbi Menachem Mendel Levitevsk. They continued on. His Rebbe convinced him he has to go back to Russia to lead the Jewish the Hasidim in Russia, to fight against the opponents, the Misnagdim, which are the Vilna Goyen and the others. Zalta Revi was qualified, uniquely qualified to be able to tackle the bastion of the opponent, opposition, Lithuania, with his brilliance and his ability to articulate Hasidus in a very logical way, in a very comprehensive way. And then he founded the Chabad Hasidus. The fifth Lubavitcher Rebbe wanted to go to Israel. Fourth Lubavitcher Rebbe threatened the Russian government that he's going to go and take a million Jews with him to Israel. The Rebbe never made it to Israel. The previous Rebbe was the only one after he was released from prison. In 1928, he traveled to, traveled to Israel. He was in Israel for like two weeks, a little over two weeks. And he visited, ostensibly the reason was because the Rebbe spoke about it, the last Fabrengen. The last Fabrengen, the Rebbe spoke before he had the stroke. He discussed why he never went to Israel. And he said none of the Rebbes went to Israel. And the only Rebbe who made it to Israel was the previous Rebbe. And the obvious, ostensible reason was because till then he would go to the graves of his ancestors, his father, his grandfather, his great-grandfather, the Baal Shem Tov, and pray. But now that he was cut off from Russia, he left Russia, he was cut off from the graves of his father and all his ancestors. So he went to Israel. And he, huh? He was in, yeah, he was in Hebron. As a matter of fact, it's very interesting. 
Jews were not allowed to go inside the cave of Machpelah then. He was there right before the massacre of Hebron. Right when he left, on the boat he left, there was a massacre. When the people who heard about it, he caught a heart attack. Literally, he was a big heart because he couldn't take the... He had just been in Hebron. And they asked, the Jews were not allowed to go into the cave of Machpelah. They had to go up the steps. When we were in Hebron, we weren't up the steps where people would pray there. So they asked the mayor of Hebron if they could make an exception, the previous rebbe, he was like a leader of the Jews of Russia. So he gave permission. And he went in. But the mufti of Jerusalem, the the anti-Semite, the Nazi, he sent the telegram urgently, don't give permission, no Jew is allowed in, I don't care which Jew it is. But by the time he got the telegram, it was too late, they already let the previous Rebbe in. I think when the previous Rebbe came out, he also went up the steps to pray where everyone is praying. He says, since Jews are praying here for so long, it also became like a holy place. And he went to Rabshim Bayechoi, grave Rabshim Bayechoi, Amir Balanes, and again, he, was, he wrote a whole diary of his trip. The previous Rebbe was an unbelievable writer, and he writes everything worthwhile to read everything that he writes it's just amazing and he writes about his whole trip and very movingly and his experiences and the wall the western wall and so ostensibly that was the reason but he was the only Rebbe that actually made it to Israel briefly a visit the other Rebbe's never even got to visit it was like, almost like Mashiach ben Yosef his name was Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak coming, coming to Israel and now we're waiting for Mashiach Ben David to come. Afterwards, he went to America. He came to America. He was in America for a long time, close to a year. He traveled all over America. And you see the press reports. 10,000 people greeted him here. It was like a celebrity. People came in droves. This is, this is the Rebbe, the Lubavitcher Rebbe. Firstly, there were many, there were Nusacharishals and the thousands all over America, but the, many of them were Jews were from Russia. They all had connections to Chabad, you know. Third Lubavitcher Rebbe had a million Hasidim. All, all of Russia were his Hasidim. So well, most of the Russian Jews had some Hasidic connection, all some Chabad connection. And uh, the previous Rebbe actually was very impressed. He liked what he saw. He said the American youth, they're open. America was so assimilated then, but, he, but he, he saw the potential. He said, they're open, you know, they, they could be taught, and they, they have the spirit, and, you know, and America has the spirit of nonconformity. He, had, he saw the spirit of the 60s. He, like, he, he was a visionary, he was like a prophet. He saw, he said, there's, there's going to come a day that the youth is going to rebel against the materialism, the conformity of their parents. They're going to fight for individuality, they're going to fight for something spiritual. He was a big fan of American. And when he came to America in 1940, he was struggling with a minion, but he understood the American spirit. He put out a publication. He started a, a, a musical division, a record society. He understood the American spirit. He didn't speak a word of English. But he was like so in tune with the, you know, 60 years old. He came a broken man in a wheelchair. Everyone thought he was going to retire. You know, he lived a long life, a good life, fought the fight. Now he can sit and relax. And he says, I didn't come to America to retire. God didn't save me from Stalin and from Hitler to retire. I came to America to revolutionize America, to transform America, to show America is not different. He says America was like a piece of ice. At the end of, the, at the end of the life, he says, now the ice is starting to melt. This was in 1950 when he passed away. And the Rebbe, 
already brought it to the next level. Now the ice is on fire. There's no more ice. Now America's cooking. Yiddishkeit is cooking in every city in the world, every city in the world and every city in America. But then, just to break the ice, and people threatened him. The previous Rebbe said, I got opposition from right, left, and center. But he says, someone who lived through Stalin, you can imagine, I, I'm laughing. You think, you think you're threatened, your threats, you think you can intimidate me? <laughs> so if I lived through Stalin, Stalin's hell, and I lived through Hitler, you think you can threaten me with anything? I mean, I'm not intimidated. Nothing intimidates me. So this was a very, very, very special, very holy, one of the holiest Rebbe's. And you see the dedication and devotion, what a chassid the Rebbe was of the, the previous Rebbe and his father-in-law. You can get a sense of what, <laughs> what this was his Rebbe. And he was his chassid, <laughs> completely dedicated and devoted. A true chassid. You could just imagine what the special, special. And just to give one story, just a little idea, a glimpse. The previous rabbi by his bar mitzvah, say he said the Hasidic discourse that we all say. There's the Hasidic discourse of his grandfather, the Rebbe Marash. It says in the Medrash Tillim. But in addition, the, previ- the fifth Lubavitch Rebbe taught him another three Hasidic discourses, much longer Hasidic discourses, which was private, which he wasn't going to repeat in public, and he was only going to repeat at the Ohel. They were going to go visit the, the gravesite of his father and his grandfather, the Rebbe Marash, and what's that? Right before his bar mitzvah, the previous Rebbe comes into the room of his father, the Rebbe Rashab, and he starts saying a fourth Hasidic discourse that his father never taught him. When his father hears this, he turned pale, white. His hands started shaking. He says, when did you see him? Referring to his father, who had already passed away 10 years ago, Rebbe Marash. In other words, the Rebbe Marash had visited his grandson, 12 years old, visited his grandson and taught him, personally taught him, Hasidic discourse. And he said, was this in a dream or was this while you were awake? Because there's different types of visitations. There's visitations like a dream state and there's a visitation like you're awake and he's sitting right there. The previous I said he was awake. So this is, he was 12, he was already getting visitations without the knowledge of his father from his grandfather, the Rebbe Marat, teaching him a Maimar Hasidus for his Bar Mitzvah. So just to give you an idea what we're dealing with here. We're dealing with it's a, different, a, different, a different level. The Rebbe always told the story, and he would cry whenever he told the story, that when the previous Rebbe um, went to Israel, so on the way, he passed through Alexandria. They have to travel by boat and they came to Egypt, Alexandria and then they went by train through the Sinai and they came to Israel uh, it, was all, it was all under Great Britain at the time so one of the Hasidim <coughs> came to meet him, imagine the Hasidim been living there, haven't seen been cut off from Chalabavitch for decades, they haven't seen the Rebbe and one of the Hasidim came to the train station to greet the Rebbe and when he saw he saw the previous Rebbe, he fainted. He said, this is the Rebbe Marash. 
this is the fourth Lubavitcher Rebbe, because he remembered him in his youth. He looked exactly like his grandfather. Like he thought he's looking at, he saw him. He's like, the Rebbe would tell the story, he'd always cry. I don't know why, he'd always tell the story, he'd always cry. He's exactly his, his grandfather, the Rebbe Marash. Look at, I mean, what we know about his daughter, Afayim Mishka. I don't know the rest of his family, but... You know, out of, out of such yeah, three daughters, right? Circumstances. She was so elegant and refined, right. and right. Well, she was the counterpart. Right. The wife of a rebbe, the daughter of a rebbe, the daughter, granddaughter of a rebbe, the great granddaughter of a rebbe, and on and on. Yes. Um, these were the embodiment of everything that the Jewish people are all about, wow. and and and. One last story, and then we'll... Um, I remember the Rebbe telling the story. It was in the fall of 1977, on the yard site of the Rebbe Marash, which was the night before Sukkot, the 13th day of Tishrei. So that night, which was already the night of the day before Sukkot, the Rebbe would always have a fabrengen. This was in the fall of 1977. And the Rebbe was speaking, and, and then he got a little off topic. We didn't see the connection. He got off topic, and he said that the previous Rebbe, the last 17 years of his life, was completely miraculous. The doctors had no explanation how this Jew was alive. His whole, he was a very sick. His whole insides were... It, just, it didn't make sense to them medically. It's not, it wasn't even possible. It wasn't a one-time miracle. It was an ongoing miracle for 17 years. The last 17 years of his life, he was a walking miracle. And the Rebbe was crying when he, told, when he said this. And he told the story of a chassid, you know, in Russia, there was a curfew, and, and the chassidim was fabringing, and they ran out of lechayim, and they sent one of the chassidim to go out, or it was after the fabringing, he was walking home, and they asked him, where are you going? Who's going? The police stopped him. Who's walking down the street? It's a curfew. So instead of giving his name, he said, Bittel idiot. Bittel means egolessness is walking. Hmm. In other words, after fabringing for a few hours, he was so imbibed the spirit and internalized the idea that there's no other reality but Hashem, and we're nothing, and there's no, nothing but God, and there's no other reality, and this whole world is nothing to Hashem, insignificant, and the whole world, all there is is Hashem, it's the only reality. He was so, he internalized it to such an extent that, what's his name? My name is nothing. Egolessness, bittle, self-nullification. So the Rebbe was saying that, the, that when godliness becomes, you're so internalized that that becomes your nature, that your whole nature is godliness. The previous Rebbe, 17 years he lived, his whole being was miraculous in God. Not a one-time thing when he needed a miracle. His whole being on the natural day-to-day basis was miraculous. The Rebbe cried and told the story. We didn't understand until later that Shmini Yatzeret, that holiday, the Rebbe had a uh, heart attack mm. while in synagogue, in the middle of Akavad, I remember. And then in his room that morning, he had another heart attack, a massive heart attack. And the doctors said they don't, they don't understand how the Rebbe survived the heart attack, especially the second one. It was so massive. And um, the Rebbe lived for another 17 years, minus two months passed away, this happened in 1977, passed away in 1994. 
So when the Rebbe was talking about his father-in-law, the previous Rebbe, he was also talking about himself, because mm. the same thing happened, the 17 years. Um, father-in-law and son-in-law. And they're buried together. They were inseparable in their life. They're inseparable in their passing. It's one continuum, one continuation. And uh, the Rebbe continued with the previous Rebbe left off and amplified and publicized and communicated it and implemented it and this vision that the previous Rebbe had. So, and the two are together. And they're with us here in exile, here in America, and they're going to go with us together to the Holy Land, to the Promised Land, where we'll have the ultimate redemption. Today is just a taste of redemption. Uh, as miraculous as it is, it's just a taste of the ultimate redemption, redemption of Mashiach. And when we not only have 48 hours of redemption, but every day and every moment will be Shabbos and redemption, and this world will become whole and good and godly and genuine, and this world will become a Torah world, the way God envisioned it, and inevitably it will become, and imminently, this will happen imminently, any moment, and the Rebbe and the previous Rebbe, Mashiach, will walk through the door and take us all out of exile, and next shear will be given. Mashiach himself, with Padal yeah. Rebbe himself, and, uh, and the Upper East Side of Yerushalayim. This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com.